Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast, and I'm back with our usual crew here. I've got Terry Fakes with me. First of all, uh, great job last week on the solo podcast. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, honestly, I I uh, may have built a few straw men, but as Douglas Wilson said, I seem to have won all my arguments. So Yeah, and it was great to just hear what you've been reading and things that had piqued your interest. Sometimes I treat those as as uh, job interviews for books that I either will or won't read based on your recommendations. Yes, I do too. I, I read a lot of, a lot of the books I read come from other people describing what it's about and I have a good sense of whether or not I'm going to get a lot out of that book. So hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, I thought it was. Well, before we get to what the topic that we want to talk about today, I, I just want to mention we're sitting here on a Saturday And the Mueller report has just been released. And so I wanted to react to that a little bit, even though we don't really have much information on it right now. But I know by the time that our listeners are hearing this on Tuesday, there will be quite a bit of information out. Right. What's your first reaction? Well, I have two thoughts uh, that just hit me as soon as I heard that it dropped. Number one, it seems to me he's finished with indictments because he was Mm -hmm. making indictments as he went. So I think if you were going to see a bombshell indictment. Uh, We probably would have seen it. My second expectation is this. You remember when Comey came out uh, looking into the server issue with Hillary Rodham Clinton and uh, basically said, uh, I condemn them. They were negligent. They were, you know, they did a lot of things wrong, but I'm not going to indict them. And Mm -hmm. everybody thought that that is kind of the worst of both worlds. And to me, it was prosecutorial, unprofessional behavior. I expect professional behavior from Mueller. I think Mueller Mm -hmm. will lay out the facts. And, you know, I could be proved wrong on this, but my expectation is he's a pro. He will lay out the facts and he will recommend an indictment or simply not. He will not uh, make judgments like I think Comey did. So those are my first two thoughts, is I don't expect a bombshell indictment out of this, and secondly, I expect it to be more professional than what James Comey did. That's right. I agree with that, and I don't think he's going to make any more indictments. I don't know if the report has been released to the public. I don't know if it's been leaked yet, but from what I've heard from people that have it in the Wall Street Journal and various places is that it doesn't recommend any more indictments. Now, the thing about that is, of the, there's maybe 13 or 15 investigations going on right now in the courts about Russian collusion, and only six or seven of them were being conducted by the Mueller investigation. So, right. and the Trump organization is in court in several places. But the scope is something that I think will be interesting once the report is released. So, because of the Mueller team's work, Manafort is in jail, maybe for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael Cohen is going to jail. Rick Gates may end up going to jail. So the scope of it is something I'm really interested in because it seems like a lot of the discussion has gotten away from Russia and what they did or did not do in in the election and more along the lines of how the Trump organization and the Trump campaign conducted themselves during the run-up to, and then now what we're seeing the months immediately following the 2016 election. So that's one thing I'm going to be looking for. Yeah, The second thing I I, I want to look for is what kind of judgments does he make? The, The fear I have, and this has been probably the most likely thing from the beginning of this whole 
ordeal is. He's going to release a report that's vague enough that everybody can kind of read into it whatever it is they already wanted to believe about the situation. So I've seen reports this morning that the Democrats still want to impeach, and they really wanted that no matter what the report said. If it helped them, great. If not, fine. And then the Trump supporters are already celebrating like he's been fully and completely exonerated from any and all charges. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of the world we live in. We don't really care about the truth until we have a piece of information that we style as truth to expedite whatever it is we already wanted to believe. Right. Yeah, you make a couple of great points there. I think the Democrats have already been anticipating a Mueller report that's, quote, is a dud from their point of view. Mm -hmm. It's an anticlimactic. And they have been pushing other avenues. It's almost like you don't hear Russian collusion coming out of the mouths of the Democrats. It's more an idea of, well, let's just look for improper behavior. So I wouldn't Mm -hmm. expect this report, whatever it says. I agree with you. Everybody's going to hear what they want to hear or they're going to ignore it. I don't think this is going to tone down the rhetoric or change the investigatory environment in any way. But I have a question for you. Can I ask you a process kind of question? Politico reported this morning that William Barr, who has the report as of yesterday, said he Mm -hmm. might brief congressional leaders as early as this weekend. So Mm -hmm. my question to you is this. uh, Obviously, as soon as it hits Congress, it leaks. So is it better for Barr to uh, get the data out there quickly so that it comes out in a more authentic way, perhaps even releasing the report or portions of the report? Or should he play it a little closer to the chest, which would allow people to spin the information? I mean, as far as full disclosure or play it close to the chest, what's your opinion on the best way to go for Barr? Barr probably knows that it's going to get out no matter what, as you mentioned. And, I, and, and the House voted unanimously to release the report to the public. Mm-hmm. So the only matter of timing is how long are they going to take to scrub the report of either classified or sensitive right. information yeah. that's contained in, in the findings. And then I'm not 100% certain what the rules are with the evidence that doesn't make it into the report. But regardless... The report and some is going to be released to the public at some point. It kind of depends what's in the report. On on the one hand, Barr is supposed to be apolitical. Right. But Barr is not an idiot. He knows that this is a completely political undertaking. Right. So I would say, and I've been saying this all along, for Christians who are engaging with the Mueller investigation, with indictments of any kind, we want to know the truth. Right. And even if the truth is politically inconvenient for whatever our goals are, our commitment to the truth outweighs our commitment to any political leader, any political party. So I would say the right thing to do is release the information. You know that people are going to spin it. You know that people are going to take parts of it and and use them however they will. But the best safeguard against that, in my opinion, is having as many people have as much information as possible is your best chance for the report speaking for itself. You know, that's a really great point you make, and I agree from a Christian point of view, because the reality is, in my view, that this report is going to be weaponized uh, in both directions, no matter what you do. So I agree with you. The best defense and the best uh, way forward is transparency. The more people, as you Mm -hmm. said, the more people that have all the facts 
the better it will be because we're more likely to get the general public to know the truth and not just the spin. Right. My, my ultimate take on this is it's going to be a non-factor. That's just my sense at this point is if there were something huge coming out of this, we would know by now. Yeah. Since there are no more indictments being recommended, at least on the surface, it just seems like this is going to be a non-event. Yeah. Well, kind of closing out my views on the Mueller investigation, regardless of your opinion about Mueller, and I know that those opinions vary, I will simply make this observation. He has run as tight a ship with as few leaks as I have ever seen in a special counsel investigation. That is so true. Well, I want to move to our main topic for this, and this is a little bit different for us, but I'm really looking forward to it. There's an article that came out. It came out the 1st of February at New York Magazine, but we I linked to it in last week's weekly speak. The article is called The Nature of Sex, and it's written by a guy named Andrew Sullivan. He is kind of an interesting guy. In, in one sense, he's fairly conservative on certain issues, but he is a non-religious gay man who writes for New York Magazine. So in some ways, mm-hmm. he's not conservative at all. What's interesting about him is I think he offers some of the sharpest analysis on areas where culture and politics overlap. So he writes a weekly column. This is actually just the first section of his weekly column. There are several stories after this one, but this one is really, really important. Um, So the article is called The Nature of Sex, and we're going to link to it if you want to read it. But what I want to do, at least for the first part of this, before we dive off into all the constellation of issues, is I want to just walk through the article together and comment on what he writes, why he writes it, the implications of what he writes, and then then talk about why I think this is such an important article. So he, he begins, and it, it begins with an event, actually, a panel at the Heritage Foundation where they had a group of, of three feminists from an organization called Women's Liberation Front. And basically what they were doing is, is having a panel discussion about feminism in light of transgenderism. Mm -hmm. And they've done this before. There was a panel discussion at Heritage called Biology is Not Bigotry, maybe three or four years ago. And it was a similar topic. It was feminists basically arguing that the ideology of the transgender movement undermines and in some ways is, is taking away from what feminists have believed and done over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. So he begins by citing this and then drawing a few conclusions about it. The reason they had the panel was there's an LGBTQ group, one of the really big uh, groups, human rights campaign groups, and they proposed a act called the Inequality of the Equality Act. Uh-huh. And um, <laughs> what, what they're basically arguing is that the Equality Act, a non-discrimination bill, is not yet inclusive enough in the current milieu of, of civil rights. So we've seen some of this legislation before. This is probably the most pointed and most well-supported. But I want to stop here and do a little bit of background work to say, how did we get where we are talking about LGBTQ rights as civil rights. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I'm going to take a, a more pragmatic, or yeah, most will call it cynical approach. I I suppose there are people in the LGBTQ lobby who believe that these are civil rights, but I can't help but think how convenient it is to portray your issue as a matter of civil rights not as a matter of personal choice or personal persuasion, because our laws and our courts have a great deal of leeway when it comes to civil rights, but they have very little leeway when it comes to matters of personal preference or personal privacy. The second reason, uh, not just the courts and that being a strategy, which it worked, let's face it, the strategy to normalize and legalize, if you will, LGBTQ issues in this country came through the courts, not through the Congress. Mm -hmm. The second reason, yeah, exactly. And the second reason, I think, is it basically sounds fair to people. If you Mm -hmm. can take whatever your issue is and cast it in a light of what the average person would say is, quote, fair, and civil rights are certainly fair. If you can equate LGBTQ issues with black-white racial issues, you have a winning social argument. So I would say it was a legal tactic. And it was a way to get public sentiment on their side. Now, I'm not saying people are insincere, that there aren't people who really believe it, but I tend to be a little more cynical and think this was uh, planned for those two reasons. What, what do you think? What's interesting is it, it has been a civil rights issue from the get-go. So if you think about the Civil Rights Act in 1964, you have certain provisions that you cannot discriminate against people based on certain qualities. And what the LGBTQ lobby has done is basically go in and say, hey, well, actually, we're a part of that group that's protected, even though the the Civil Rights Act doesn't include things like sexual identity, identity, transgender identity, any of those kinds of things. But what they did was they basically went to the courts and they said, "Okay, well, if you if you if you can't discriminate on the basis of sex, then you actually can't discriminate on the basis of sexual preference either. And then the courts ruled that you cannot discriminate against a person on the grounds that had already been established in the Civil Rights Act. And so all of a sudden, now you can't discriminate against people that identify as lesbian or gay because that's included in that term in the Civil Rights Act. Well, the same thing comes along with the transgender lobby. Basically, they come in, and this is really big in Title IX, So Title IX legislation started out to guide schools on how they could and could not spend money, how you can and cannot show preferential treatment to students based on sex. And it was originated, and and most of us probably know about Title IX, because college, state colleges have to have the same amount of sports teams for men and women. That's why places like OSU, where I went, doesn't have a men's soccer team because they don't have a corresponding sport to add for women. So they have a women's soccer team, but they don't have a women's football team. They have a men's football team, but they don't have a men's soccer team. And, and, you know, that gets pretty complicated. But what what the transgender community came in and said was, well, how do you know what sex means? And we have this ambiguity in the word sex. Now we're talking biological sex, sex you identify as. And the way that most of us came into contact with with this line of argument is through the Obama era bathroom 
laws and disputes. So what you have is the Obama administration writing these non-official official letters to schools and saying, hey, you can't discriminate under Title IX based on sex, and that's going to include people that identify as a sex that's different than their biological sex. So if you want to keep your federal money, we would just recommend that you abide by these principles. So again, it's, it's a, this is going to be settled in court versus we're going to legislate this. Now we've come to the point where the social awareness is caught up to the extent that there's social pressure as well as court pressure to accommodate the, the LGBTQ agenda. Would yeah. you add anything to that? Yeah, I'd make one observation on something you said, and that is that in Title IX, there's this ambiguous word, sex. Uh, I would argue it's not ambiguous, but your point's well made. It's been made ambiguous. For example, mm-hmm. if you look at the spirit of the, of the law when it was written, it was not an ambiguous term. So, but if you would like to bypass uh, public opinion, if you'd like to bypass the Congress, what you can do as an executive branch, if you have a very favorable environment in the executive branch, you can make the word ambiguous. And mm-hmm. that's what they did. You don't have to go back to Congress and say, hey, did you mean transgenderism here? Well, obviously, when it was passed, they did not mean that. But if you can say, you know what, today that word is ambiguous and you have an executive branch that will go along with you, then you have a way to basically change the law without going back to the Congress. I admit it's a brilliant strategy. I think it's very detrimental to our democracy, but I think they made that word ambiguous. And frankly, I would expect to see that tactic played out over and over again. Yeah, in essence, it's a it's an interpretation issue as opposed to a legislative issue, which is a lot easier because at that point, all you need are activist judges to do what you want them to do as right. opposed to getting a majority of Congress to draft up a bill and vote on it. Right. So one of the observations that Sullivan makes is all of this comes down to, and this is his wording here, it, it rests upon a critical redefinition of what is known as sex. And I think your observation is really well put. It's really not a redefinition as much as it is an undefinition of the word sex. We want it to right. be as ambiguous as possible so that we can advance our agenda. That's kind of the argument behind this. And the new language in this proposed Equality Act would define sex as including gender identity and defines gender identity as gender-related identity, appearance, mannerisms, or characteristics regardless of the individual's designated sex at birth. I mean, just if you just step back for a minute and think about that, they want to define the word sex as including gender identity, which is defined as having no regard for the individual's designated sex at birth. So sex actually means having nothing to do with biological sex. And Sullivan, I'll give him credit for this as it goes on, and maybe you're going to get to this. He points out the difficulties that that issue is having within the LGBTQ lobby, because that's actually a, I would say, more than a divisive issue. I think it's philosophically a splitting issue for LGBTQ activists. Yeah, that's what I think is so fascinating about this article is he's arguing basically that the LGBTQ alliance is coming to an end because they are fundamentally at odds with each other ideologically. So I'm, I'm going to quote from his article. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting to where the argument is coming from. He says, 
What the radical feminists are arguing is that the act doesn't only blur the distinction between men and women, thereby minimizing what they see as the oppression of patriarchy and misogyny, but that its definition of gender identity must rely on stereotypical ideas of what gender expression means. It implies that a tomboy who loves sports is not a girl interested in stereotypically boyish things, but possibly a boy trapped in a female body. A boy with a penchant for Barbies and Kins is possibly a trans girl because according to stereotypes, he's behaving as a girl would. So instead of enlarging our understanding of gender expression and allowing maximal freedom and variety within both sexes, the concept of gender identity actually narrows it in more traditional and even regressive ways. Yes, and uh, I'm going to quote this from memory, so I'll probably, let's call it a paraphrase. But he makes, this is the key point I think our listeners need to to get out of this. He says this basically, abolishing clear biological distinctions between men and women is a threat to the lesbian identity. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting because what it's basically saying is the LG part of LGBT is basically saying that same-sex attraction and a lesbian identity should be legitimate. What the T part is saying is maybe you're not a woman with an attraction for women. Maybe you are inside a man. And so that is a radically different way of thinking about this. And so his point is, is that if you don't have a difference between men and women, then the LG part, the lesbian gay part, ceases to have any meaning in terms of identity. Would you clarify mm-hmm. that a little bit? Yeah, let me frame it up this way because I think this is so fascinating. So as Christians, as, as evangelical, biblical, orthodox Christians, even though there's there's debate in the, in the broader Christian world, but as evangelical Christians, we believe two big things, among others, when it comes to sex and gender. And the first one is that creation is a gendered binary. God created men and he created women. In his image, they're both in his image, but they are different from each other and complementary to each other. Mm -hmm. So we believe that. Then, And there's all kinds of argument from there, but that's kind of the bedrock. And then secondly, we believe that God's design for sex and marriage and intimacy is for one man, one woman in a covenant together before God. So what's really fascinating about this article is he points out that you have the lesbian and gay community agreeing with the first part of that, that there is a genderedness to humanity. Because what he says, and he's writing this as a gay man, he says, to be a gay man, you have to assert, I am a man and I'm attracted to men. That's what it means to be gay. And if that's the case, you have to be able to put your finger on what it means to be a man and to be attracted to one. Well, what the, what the transgender community has done is they've denied the first, but they've affirmed the second in some ways. So they're saying, no, 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 there's no such thing as male and female. There's just human at this point. And you can kind of identify as whichever one of those you want. But what they've done is they have defined attraction both in social stereotypes and mannerisms and then sexual attraction as to say, no, there are things that you are attracted to. That's part of who you are. That's an identity issue. Yeah. So, 
if you are attracted to stereotypically male things, which the gay and, and lesbian groups have been trying to undefine and redefine over the years is, is sexual stereotypes. But if you abide by those stereotypes, so you're a girl that really likes Tonka trucks, maybe you're actually a male in a female body. Right. Because you're showing that propensity. So whereas a gay person would say there is no propensity, uh, but you can be attracted to the same sex, the transgender community is saying, no, there are there are propensities that show what you actually are, even if it's not your biology. And that attraction says something about you that's fundamental. So they, they are at odds with each other fundamentally right now. Oh, and it, you're right when you say fundamentally. For example, let me just, where the rubber meets the road, and this is what Sullivan points out as a gay man. He says, as a gay man, should I be attracted to a transgender man? Meaning, Mm -hmm. should I be attracted to a biologically female person who is or has had hormone therapy, etc., and is a male? He said, no, I am not. And does that make me a bigot? In other Mm -hmm. words, uh, you're right. There is a fundamental divide in the LGBTQ community over this. Well, one of the things, and this is where you just feel kind of crazy even talking about this, one of the things that the transgender community is really, really insistent on is that um, a person who's born as a woman, biologically as a woman, who has now transgendered to be a man, has always been a man. They are a man. They're not just a, they're not just a trans man. They are a man. They've always been a man. To say that they're not a man or were not a man is 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 disrespectful to that person and should be outlawed. And that's where just from a from a human knowledge standpoint we have to say okay this is so far and so blatantly against science and knowledge and common sense we cannot go there. Mm-hmm. And his point hinges on that to say they're saying that if you are a man and you say that I'm attracted to women and there is a trans woman, and you say you're not attracted to that person, now all of a sudden you're a bigot. Right. It, this just seems like a, a house of mirrors. Absolutely. I, I call it a kind of a sexual nihilism in the sense that you've so broken down the barriers that there are no barriers, and you no longer have freedom. You actually have nihilism. You have death. It's like a cell that whose cell walls have broken down and it diffuses and you say, wow, that's a totally free cell. That's actually a dead cell. And I think that mm-hmm. even the LG portion of the LGBTQ uh, alliance is coming to say, wait a minute, you've actually dissolved too many borders. It no longer makes any sense. Mm-hmm. What's, what's fascinating about this article, too, is where he ends. So he points to these things, and actually he gives, he gives this great example. So he, he mentions that in Iran, to be a homosexual is punishable by death. Right. But what, what the progressive Iranians have adopted is an, a very progressive stance on transgenderism. So, for instance, if you're a man who's attracted to men, 
that's homosexuality, that's illegal, punishable by death. But right. if you then transition into being a woman and you are attracted to men, now you're good to go. So they avoid that problem. I mean, you just get into all these all these kind of insane workarounds. But where he ends is so fascinating because this sounds like something that Christians would say. But he's coming at it from a completely different standpoint. He says, he's tra- talking about how we resolve this. We can believe in nature and the immense complexity of the human mind and sexuality. We can see a way to accommodate everyone to the extent possible without denying biological reality. Equality, this is the sentence I'm really talking about, equality need not mean sameness. That's interesting. That is the, yeah, I agree. That's the essence of the Christian uh, contention is that you have equality, but you do not have sameness. mm Mm-hmm. He says, we have to abandon the faddish notion that sex is socially constructed or entirely in the brain, that sex and gender are unconnected, and that biology is irrelevant. Now, there's some controversy in there with what he's saying, but he's solving the the, the knot here by saying, hey, let's just admit that biology has something to do with your sex and that attraction can be to people of any sex uh, regardless of what your biology is. That's the way he kind of wants to solve this problem. Right. No, I agree. I, uh, you know, I'd probably take it a little different, I mean, for a moment, make a couple of observations, just slipping back into kind of pragmatism and some political observations. This LGBTQ alliance that's now coming apart, a couple of reasons. That was a politically convenient association and it worked until they won. And once mm-hmm. you win, then you realize, wait a minute, I don't have another enemy to conquer. I don't have a common enemy anymore. And human nature is, well, then let's look at the guy standing next to me. And let's begin to, now that we've won our major issues, they're going to destroy themselves. It was politically mm-hmm. convenient, but it was always an unstable alliance, and it was only workable right. as long as they had a common enemy. Right. It, it's it's kind of a wartime pact between right. co-belligerents more than it is a, a strong ideological fit. And I'll tell you this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. To me, as you've watched this this revolution, this sexual revolution progress— In the beginning, it was easy for me to understand why the lesbian and gay movements had some purchase culturally. I don't agree with it. I understand why, as a person who doesn't doesn't identify either as gay or lesbian, might buy into the argument, hey, this is just the way these people are. These are their feelings. Love Mm -hmm. is love. That whole thing. I can see why that got some cultural momentum. I don't know if I understand why the transgenderism issue has so much cultural traction. Because when I think about it, it doesn't have the same emotional appeal. It has a different emotional appeal. Right. It has some extremely scary implications and biological components to it. So, for example, if you start giving kids hormones as, as young as before puberty, like 8, 9, 10, 11 year olds. That's just criminal. You can sterilize them for life. And, it, and right. it, you don't even let a seven-year-old pick when they go to bed, but now you're you're letting them make decisions that are going to impact their entire life. The health concerns are awful. 
Anyway, you have all of that going along with this. I guess I don't understand why the transgenderism movement in some ways appears to be more culturally powerful than the gay and lesbian movement. What what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I have two thoughts. One I'll save till later, and that is I want to separate the idea of the transgender movement from transgender people. Uh, so let me just say, wait on that one, because I have some things to say about it. But as far as the movement is concerned, you know, I wonder, Cole, if there's not just an inertia to this identity politics that's sort of a race to the bottom, if you will, in that, okay, we've got a large group of people, relatively, what, three, I, I think the most accurate stat is 3.7% of the American population has a same-sex orientation. So let's just say the lesbian gay population is approximately 3.7%. And so now we've achieved their goals. Now, who's next? So mm-hmm. we've got all these identity groups that you begin to want to fight for their freedom. And you get in the habit of needing to fight for somebody against the establishment. So who's next? Well, now you get down to an even smaller group of people, transgender. And I think that there's a certain inertia to the what I'll call the progressive ideology to continue to find smaller and smaller groups, identity groups, for which you can. Because really, I think in a certain sense, progressivism today in American politics is defined more by what you're against than by what you're for. I know that sounds crazy Mm -hmm. because they pitch it as I'm for rights for these people. Really what you're talking about is I'm really against any rules and I'm just going to go down the list of identity groups. I may be wrong about that, but I sense there's an inertia there and it won't stop until you hit the bottom, which I think, again, is a sexual nihilism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in a cultural androgyny, I think is is part of this. Right. The abolition of gender, and what's ironic about this, in a really sad way, is the purpose, at least on the surface of the transgender movement, is to free people to be who they feel that they actually are. Which, as Sullivan points out, and we've pointed out, does depend in some ways on cultural stereotypes for gender. Right. And yet, what the movement is doing culturally is abolishing gender into androgyny. So you have an identity politics that the end goal is that there wouldn't actually be any distinction at all. And that's kind of the cruel irony of this process is kids are growing up and, and what they're being exposed to is the lack of of distinction between men and women. There's a blurred line between the two, and yet they're being told that they have to choose which one of those, or to be fluid or to be non-binary, right. that they want to be. That's an that's an insane amount of pressure. It's obviously a worldview we think is destructive, but it's even counterintuitive to its own goals. Right. Yeah, so as Christians, where where should we go from here? How do we respond to this? Because I know you know, one of the directions you alluded to is for Christians, we can't just treat people as part of the lobby. The lobby and the individuals are different. Right. Yeah. To me, there are a couple of ideas here. I'll throw them out and you comment on them. But first one is political. 
And that is what you see in the LGBTQ alliance was a political alliance of expediency. It was never an alliance of uh, ideological alignment. And you're starting to see that now. And, it's, and by the way, you'll see more and more of this. It's going to get worse. And I think for Christians, there's a lesson to be learned of the pitfalls of political expedience. And I'm going to offend some people here by saying both liberals and conservatives have been guilty of this in the Christian church. But if we as Christians will compromise the gospel for political expedience to any conservative administration, we should realize that that compromise, that sacrifice does not lead anywhere good. In other words, it ends with uh, the pollution of the gospel, not the raising up of the gospel. So political expediency has never been a tactic that Christians can engage in. I totally agree. My second point is pastoral, and I feel pretty passionate about this. You and I as pastors are interested in people more than we are interested in political movements. And when I look at, let me just talk about the transgender movement. That's actually a bunch of people with an ideology trying to impose their views on other people. I just want to leave that aside, and I want to go to the average person who's struggling with transgender identity issues. These are people who are trying to frame their experience. I think we all go through that to some extent, but I think people who are struggling with the transgender issues have an even more difficult time trying to frame their experience and make some sense of it. And I am angry at the LGBTQ movement because that ideology of dissolving the borders, saying whatever goes, is extremely unhelpful on a personal level for someone looking to build some meaning in their life. I actually think that the narrative of the transgender movement is very unhelpful to people, real people struggling with real identity issues. And I think that the church has a much more helpful narrative to try to make sense of that world than the transgender movement does. I think it's, I honestly think the transgender movement is the worst thing that could happen to someone struggling with feelings about transgender identity. Now, what do you think Mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, I would agree. I I think where we have to go when we're walking alongside individuals, and I think we should legitimately walk alongside them, and we should set our mindset that this is going to be a long process, uh, even one that never actually resolves in the way that we think maybe it should. Uh, I think we need to set our minds on the fact that you can never underestimate how good it feels and how temporarily freeing it feels for somebody to tell you that you are fine the way you are. That that voice is, on the one hand, it is a voice like the serpent in the garden. It is not true, Absolutely. but it is partially true. Right. But at the same time, we just have to affirm... In, if you're struggling in any way, but especially if you're struggling with something as fundamental as your identity, your gender, uh, it feels so good to be affirmed. Right. And part of the problem is that the, in the church, what, what we focused on is either affirming or denying, but fundamentally missing the emotional 
and, and spiritual need that's being met by people in the LGBTQ community. There's right. the aspect of, of love. Now, we would say it's a deficient pseudo-love, but the, the issue of love and belonging that takes place in a community like that, the issue of affirmation that, that takes place in that, we have to get our heads in the space of what is it that's actually appealing about the LGBTQ community for people who are struggling. And until we get to that point, we're going to be off-putting. Right. I completely agree. I mean, there's a here's the trouble I think that Christians are wrestling with is the idea of being accepting and loving to people and wanting to walk with them. The problem is this this is just my two cents worth is not and we need to remember this. Not every lesbian, gay, transgendered person is the same. Some people want to walk with you. They want to find a framework that makes sense. And I think God's framework obviously makes sense. There are others, however, who simply want you to agree with them. In other words, this is a duh kind of statement. Not all uh, lesbian, gay, or transgendered persons are created equal. Mm-hmm. So one size doesn't fit all. And I think, though, that I have a heart, and I know you do too, for people who are hurting and struggling to find an identity and want a community that will walk with them. And I think the church needs to be that. The activists who simply want to change the church to agree with them, I want to have no part of that. Yeah, and give no no quarter to that when it's a when it's an issue. When it's a person, right. I think where I would want to where I would want to encourage the church and, and where I want to encourage you know the two of us is uh-huh. Number one, we have a better affirmation than the LGBTQ community because we understand anthropology better than the LGBTQ community when it comes to what God said about us in the Bible. We are created in his image, that he loves us, that he's offered us the opportunity to commune with him, to be his children. We have to zero in on that. Right. Secondly, I want to I want to say the statistics are pretty clear that most cases of gender dysphoria resolve after puberty. Right. Some don't, but I would say what we need to keep an eye on is the long game of walking with people who are struggling, especially when it comes to kids, middle school kids, elementary school age kids. Right. Not wounding them even further in the process of walking with them until the issue resolves. Yeah. And if the issue and and not having them bear the embarrassment of working through an issue even at a young age. And then secondly for those who their desires never change, understanding that this is going to be a lifelong process of of walking with this person and having a lot of the same conversations over again and repenting all over again. Right. The same things that we would want somebody to do with us in the areas that we struggle that are just less politically hot than something like transgenderism. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Great.